At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Joel, hopefully you found Daniel chapter 3. If not, I'd invite you there. As we explore this story, it's good to see you guys this morning. I think it's probably been well attested to this congregation at this point, my affinity and affection for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think most of you know that at this point, based on the amount of illustrations I give from those movies. So you'll have to survive one more from me. But uh, one of my favorite scenes in the very first Avengers, which if you haven't seen that at this point, I can't give spoiler alerts. It's been out a decade. That's your own fault at this point. Um, But in that movie, Loki, the god of mischief and the brother of Thor, seeks to take power and rule over the earth. And one of my favorite scenes, Loki comes to earth and he reveals himself as this great and glorious god and and what he's going to be. And he he comes out of this scene, the crowds kind of flee for him, and then he kind of reveals himself and he commands everyone suddenly to bow. And in the scene, this sea of humanity bows before Loki. And he has one of, I think, a very interesting dialogue in that moment. He, he speaks over the people and he says that the unspoken truth of humanity is our craving for subjugation, that we were made to be ruled. And he says, in the end, you will always kneel. And in the scene, there's this older gentleman who in the midst of the crowd of people stands up defiantly when Loki says that. And he looks at him and he says, not to men like you. And Loki looks back at him and says, there are no men like me. And the elderly gentleman in defiance says, there will always be men like you. And he stands there kind of steadfast and movable, ready to take the blow from Loki's scepter. And then right as he shoots him, Captain America swoops in and then the whole scene continues. But it's always been one of my favorite scenes because it's this incredible picture of courage in the midst of deranged power. And there's kind of just this inspiring moment as this guy kind of stands amongst his people, bowed before Loki, to just kind of say, no, I will not bow to you. And it, it's always inspired me and challenged me. It always kind of makes me wonder if I was in a similar situation, not that I'm standing before some you know, mythical enemy, but if I was ever in some situation, would I have that sort of power and that sort of courage to stand against um, pa- deranged power and influence? And could I kind of have that We've been in this series uh, that we've called Daniel, the Clash of Cultures, where we've been exploring the way in which the kingdom of God often clashes with the culture around us and the culture of our world. 
And as that happens, one of the things that I think is true is that there are many times where we're faced with the pressure to bow our knees to the ways of the world and to compromise our faith. And I wonder, in light of that reality, am I the sort of person, are we the sort of people when those moments come that will respond with the sort of courage to stand in faith or to kneel in cowardly compromise? Daniel's made up of six strategic stories about Daniel and his friends who were youth in the nation of Israel, but their nation was conquered by the larger global empire of Babylon, and they were exported from their nation to the court of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And there they were sought to be made men that would serve that kingdom. And Babylon sought to indoctrinate them with its truth and its reality. And yet these men stood firm in following the way of God in the midst of their clash of culture. And this book is recorded as a way to inspire God's people when we face our own realities and challenges from the culture around us. And today we come to the third story within our narrative, a story about Daniel's friends who, in some ways, like the scene in Avengers, invite us to consider how we can have courageous faith. Because courageous faith always rejects idolatrous worship. That's what you're going to see in our text today. But I think the reality is that courageous faith is something I think we all desire. When we see examples of it, examples of courage, we are inspired towards it. I don't think anybody watches a scene like that or any other movie where courage is exemplified and thinks like, I want to be the cowardly crowds that just bow to the evil guy. That's like what I'm aspiring to. No, there's something in it that like stirs us to say, no, I want to have that sort of faith. I want to have that sort of courage. I want to stand strong. We exist, though, in a culture that is anti-God's kingdom. So oftentimes, that courage can be easier said than actually done. And I think many of us wrestle with the question of how do I actually have courageous faith? In a culture that seems to be increasingly hostile towards God's ways, how do I exemplify courage in that reality? Well, this morning, we're going to learn from three men who I think give us an incredible example of courageous faith. They're Daniel's companions in the book. We were introduced to them in chapter 1. Their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you have trouble following either of those, you can just go with the VeggieTales twist, and we'll call them Rack, Shack, and Benny, okay? So either way, they were men along with Daniel who existed in the king's court. And we saw in chapter 2 that they were actually given incredible influence within Babylon at the time. But then, in Daniel chapter 3, they face a challenge. And in that challenge, we see courage emerge. Look with me at Daniel chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. Or if you want to translate that for our culture, its height was 90 feet high and, 90, and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So following along, Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive image of gold. Now, remember, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he had also a dream of an image. And in that image, the head was made of gold, and gold represented his king, his kingdom, and his reign. Well, apparently that image stuck in Nebuchadnezzar's mind because he takes that and he decides to build a massive statue of gold in order to declare his superiority and unite everyone in his empire under one religion. It's not really clear if this image was of him specifically or of a Babylonian deity, but the purpose is clear in the text. Nebuchadnezzar wants to unite everyone in one religious act of worship under his crafted image. It's a loyalty test for his kingdom. If you don't bow, then you are a threat to him and his rule and reign. And this call goes out to everyone, right? Twice were listed all the leaders that existed, these layers of leaders within the Babylonian kingdom. But it also goes out to all the peoples and nations. And there's a threat. Bow or I'm going to cast you in this furnace of fire. And it works. Everybody falls down and worships the image. In a culture of polygamy and syncretism, it's not a problem for anyone to just add one more image, one more God to worship. But it is a problem for some people. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, I reminded you last week that the Chaldeans are a people group, but in the text, they're connected and associated with astrology. So they were religious leaders in the day. So when Daniel refers to Chaldeans, he's referring to that reality. So you could also say the religious leaders as well. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Get the point yet? Therefore, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. For Daniel and his companions, the command to bow down and worship the image was a direct challenge to their faith. When God laid out his word towards the people of Israel, he gave them, to start, ten clear commandments. But the first two are significant for our text today. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. To worship Yahweh was to obey those two commands. So therefore, when Nebuchadnezzar comes on and says, well, you're not going to worship Yahweh, you're going to worship this image, and this image is an idol, 
for them and these men, this was to compromise their faith. And the author wants you to know that this is, in fact, an idol. I don't know if you picked up in the reading how many times, every time he refers to the image, he references it as being set up. It's his subtle way of helping you to know this is a manufactured construction. This is something man-made by Nebuchadnezzar. And ultimately, Daniel's companions refuse to worship this idol. Now, they don't do it with fanfare or a big fuss. They don't parade themselves in front of everyone in their cultural defiance. But they quietly and subversively do not go along with their culture's worship. But however, others take notice, and they come and tell the king. And in that moment, they faced a ton of pressure, not only from the authority above them, but the, conform, but the conformity that was happening around them. But they refused to worship any other god. Whenever a culture has an idol, there will be pressure to conform and bow to that idol. But courageous faith, what we see at the beginning of this story in these men, is that courageous faith rejects cultural idolatry. It does not follow the idols of the culture and bow its knee to those things that would compromise its faith in God and his kingdom. And that's what these men exemplify. Now, it's easy in our culture to think that we don't necessarily have idols because we don't worship physical images. But idols is just as much an issue of the heart. An idol is ultimately something that we worship, what we give power and allegiance to in our life, what we find meaning and purpose and value from. A cultural idol is something then that is held central in a community where the community is expected to give its ultimate allegiance to those things. And that's what they're facing. You want to be part of this community? You bow down and you worship this. You follow this God this way. And when we understand idolatry as an issue of allegiance, of worship, of what we give value, and what we find meaning and purpose from, what we recognize is that our society actually has a number of key idols as well. We have things that we're pressured to bow down before. Maybe not literally, but at least figuratively. I think one of the idols that we face a challenge from, and I could name a couple at this point, but I think one of those that we face a challenge from in our culture is the idol of money. And it's sisters of productivity and consumption. What Jesus calls in Matthew 6, the God of mammon. Our world and culture says, it's fine for you to be a Christian, but you follow this God. You practice what our culture says about where you find meaning and purpose and value. And oftentimes, our consumeristic culture becomes a religious experience. James Smith is a professor at Calvin University, and he wrote a book several years ago called Desiring the Kingdom, where he wrote about exploring cultural liturgies is what he calls it, the way in which our culture tries to form our hearts and our affections and our faith. And in that book, he talks about one of the cultural liturgies or practices of our kind of consumeristic culture, and it's a little bit dated, but I think it's still poignant, is one of the religious experiences that we have in our culture is going to the mall. 
And in it, he likens a trip to the mall as a religious experience. For instance, you regularly, every day, are evangelized towards the power of the mall. Every advertisement that you see, and you see thousands of them, tell you you are deficient in this area. This part of your life is left wanting, but you can find meaning and significance and power and purpose in purchasing. So go, come here. And when you go into the mall, what do you see? Bright lights and images that fill our imagination, that capture us, that tell us if you buy this thing, if you come into this store, if you get this product, if you wear this, if you own this, then you'll find that meaning, that purpose, that significant, that thing, that ache in your heart that has been cultivated. And it's religious, right? We, we go almost subconsciously and subversively into this space, hoping bit by bit that maybe this will provide what we need. Sometimes I wonder if we worship too much at the God of money. Or we find ourselves on the opposite side of it, in a world that tells us, you want to have meaning and value? Produce, 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 produce. Do more, achieve more, get more, accumulate more, 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 more. That's ultimately how you find meaning and purpose and value. Doesn't matter if your terrible person will hold you up, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, as the priests of our society. Who cares about your character? Let's look at your productivity. Money is an idol. And as an idol, it's fine with you being a Christian. Just be a consumer Christian. Just follow its pattern. That's what an idol always does. James Smith makes the point in his book this. He says, such practices are jealous. They want their particular vision of what really matters to supersede or trump all other competing practices. They don't mind if you brush your teeth and practice piano every day, but they don't want you to engage in practices that would threaten their vision of the kingdom as the one that ultimately drives your desire actions, and relationship. Just try in our culture to practice contentment that you have enough clothes and you'll feel the ache. Just try to limit your productivity at work and say, you know what, I'm going to be content with my 40 hours. And you'll feel the pull towards, no, you got to put more if you want to get ahead. And beyond that, ignore the issues like the exploitation of people for cheap products. Don't ask questions like how much really is enough. Give your energy, your time, your life to pursue all in the name of acquisition and economic prosperity. See, we have idols in our culture too. And we feel the pressure to conform, to not follow the way of the kingdom. But what Daniel companions remind us is that part of courageous faith is actually rejecting cultural idolatry. Part of that starts with identifying cultural idols. And I, I said money, Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods, which I would re recommend to you, says we have three prominent idols in our culture, money, sex, and power. And as we see those things, we need to question what are the promises and practices that this seeks to cultivate in me so I give my allegiance to this. And then, like these men, we have to turn from those practices to find our purpose, our practice, our way of life in Jesus, in his teaching, in God's kingdom. So maybe part of the way we reject cultural idolatry in our day is we limit trips to the mall or maybe Amazon.com. 
But as we do that, we should anticipate that we will face opposition just like these men did. And that's why not only must we reject cultural idolatry, we also must refuse to compromise. Look how the story continues. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you did not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar increases the pressure on these men, threatening them with death. He mocks their God. Listen, I'm the one in power here. His arrogance is on full display. You don't obey me, you can expect that you will die a heinous death. But look how they respond, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love the example they set here. We don't have a need to respond to you. You're not the one in control. God is the one in control. He's the one who's sovereign over all things. And whether God chooses to rescue us or not, that doesn't matter. You see, courageous faith in the face of increased pressure, it refuses to compromise. Now these men, they know that God is able to deliver him. They attest to that. But they don't know if he will. They don't know what his ultimate plan is in this. But even in that reality, they refuse to compromise. Just think of the pressure for them. All they have to do is bow down for one little moment, just bend their knee, and they retain their livelihood, their jobs, their wealth, their status, their relationships, all that they had accumulated within the kingdom. But what do they say? We will not obey. We will not bow. We will not worship. They don't know God's plan, but they know God's word. And as Dale Ralph Davis says, what matters for them is not deliverance. It's obedience. They are willing to obey despite the pressure. Courageous faith is always willing to obey in the face of the call to compromise. It's willing not to conform to the culture but to stand for the values of the kingdom despite the pressure. You and I face calls to compromise all the time. But the question is, will we or will we stand with courage? This past week, I think we celebrated the life of someone who gave an incredible example and some really challenging words in this reality. Martin Luther King Jr. faced the challenge to compromise multiple times throughout his life. And in one of his most famous works, which is actually a response to a call to compromise, he challenges us towards what kind of culture the church will be. During his day, a group of white religious leaders who were expressing caution and concern about King's nonviolent demonstrations wrote a public statement questioning and calling him to back down and compromise. But he refused. And in his most, one of his most famous works, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, 
he wrote on why the church should not bow to the pressure of the culture. He said this, There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christian for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. King reminds us that part of what it means to be the church is to be marked as a colony of heaven. And no matter what the pressure increases on the outside, we are to remain committed to the values of the kingdom, to be promoters of justice and righteousness, what is good and right and true. And the question that we face in cultural clashes as cultural pressure increases is, will we be faithful to obey God's word despite the cultural consequences? Will we be the sort of people who have courage to say that what God has said is true and right should be accepted and what God has said is false and wrong, we must reject and turn from? And we will face consequences for that. Some are big like losing your life or being in prison. But often in our culture, it's smaller things, loss of a job, reputation, certain income, relationships, opportunities. The question is, will we be the sort of people who have courage and refuse to compromise? When our culture redefines sexuality, will we hold to God's word or what the culture says? When our culture redefines where life begins, will we hold to God's word or what the culture says? When our culture comes along and says, this is how you have to behave. This is how you have to practice. This is what you have to do. Will we follow the way of the kingdom? Will we stand in courage? Or will we fall and compromise like so many did? What these men remind us is that part of courageous faith is refusing to compromise with the culture, and to obey what God has said in his word. We don't know the plan all the time, but we know what his word says. Will we be faithful to that? But how can we actually find the courage to reject cultural idolatry? How do we actually refuse to compromise? What lies at the heart of living with that sort of faith? Well, I think we find that in the final part of this story. Because what we're going to see is what ultimately is at the heart of why they're able to do this is because they trust in God's deliverance. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Nebuchadnezzar responds as he did before with even increased anger. He intensifies the furnace. And then he does what the world always does and how it seeks to deal with idle defiance. It makes them pay the ultimate price. But something miraculous happens. Look at 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Oh, I'm sorry. I jumped. Verse 24. I missed the best part. (laughs) Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. Catch this, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're thrown into the fiery furnace. But when Nebuchadnezzar looks, he sees something miraculous. He expects to see dead men but what he sees are living men. And he expects to see bound men, but what he sees are free men. And he expects to see three men, but what he sees is a fourth man, one who he says is like a son of the gods, which is actually a term used in their day for spiritual beings. Now, many people see that as the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the triune God. But ultimately, what Nebuchadnezzar sees is that God is present with these men in the fire, even before he delivers them. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman makes this point. If God wanted, he could have extinguished the flames of the fire in order to save the three men. He saved them in the fire, not just from the fire. You see, God shows his presence with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they experience his deliverance from the fire. And in light of this miracle, we see an incredible change in Nebuchadnezzar. He acknowledges that these men serve the most high God, which acknowledges God's supremacy and holiness. He gathers the leader and praises God for their deliverance. He orders a decree that no one will seek against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He somehow goes from worshiping his own golden image to now ordering a decree of worship towards God, the true God of Israel. What results in such a dramatic change for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, what he observed, he says it in 29, there is no other God who can rescue in this way. Witnessing God's dramatic intervention and rescue gave rise to the praise and transformation that we see of Nebuchadnezzar in the story. And it's here that we find the heart of the story. And where we find the foundation for our call to courageous faith. You see, the uncompromising faith of these men 
paired with God's dramatic presence in the fire and his deliverance from the fire is a reminder and call to our own courage that we are called to stay faithful and obedient. Why? Because in the end, God is with you and he will deliver you. To live with courageous faith is to set your hope and your trust on God's deliverance. This story in many ways is meant to show us the pattern of how God brings deliverance. It's to encourage our faith despite the pressure that we face. Because the reality is, for you and I, God never promised that we would not face trials in our life. In fact, God promised the exact opposite. Jesus told his followers, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will. Like, it's guaranteed. Paul would write to his protege, Timothy, and he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The, the Bible's honest. It doesn't promise, oh, health, wealth, happiness. It promises a good life in the end. It provides ultimate meaning and purpose, but that doesn't mean there isn't hardship along the way. But what meant, you're meant to see in this is that we will face trials, but God has promised to be present in those trials, and he's promised our ultimate deliverance from them. How can you know that to be true? Like I said, Daniel 3 is a type of deliverance that foreshadows God's ultimate deliverance in and through Jesus Christ. What's pictured here, we see ultimately in Jesus, right? These three men, they face incredible persecution and the threat and reality of death despite their temporary obedience. But our Lord and Savior Jesus, he would face threat, persecution, and ultimately death because of his perfect obedience. Although he perfectly obeyed, never sinned, always did what was right, what was just, what was good. He would still face hostility and pressure from the world and ultimately would be condemned to die. But he refused to come, succumb to the devil's temptation or to compromise with the idolatrous leaders and powers of his day. And ultimately, in his death, he would lay down his life for the sins of all people to make a way of deliverance. And although Jesus would die on that cross... Three days later, just like these men would emerge from the furnace unharmed by the fire, Jesus Christ would emerge from the grave unharmed by death itself in order for you to proclaim that God is on the move in delivering you and to make a way in which all of us could be delivered from the powers of Satan, sin, and death that plague our lives and our world. Jesus is the greater deliverance that Daniel foreshadows and that you and I can experience. And in Jesus, what is true for these men can become and is true for you and me if you've put your faith in him. The promise of God is you will face trials, but the greater promise in Jesus is that he will be with you in those trials. That's why he would tell his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In Matthew 28, when he gave him the commission, great commission, he would say, I am with you always to the end of the age. The promise of Jesus 
is not that you won't face trials, is that he'll be with you in them. The great struggle that we face in the trials of our lives is we often feel so isolated and alone. We remove, it's the great trick of the enemy. But to know Jesus is to know the presence of God no matter what trial you might be facing, no matter what suffering you might encounter. In Jesus, you're never alone. You're never abandoned. He never turns his back and says, oh, figure it out on your own. He's with you all the time, present in the trial, offering you just what you need. Just like the fourth man in the fire, Jesus is in the fire of your life by his Holy Spirit. You can always know his presence. You can always know his withness with you. That's the promise he made. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are not alone this morning. Jesus Christ is with you. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. If you want to know God's presence, it just starts with trusting in his death and resurrection on your behalf. And as you know the presence of God, you can stand strong then in the trials of your life. You don't have to bow to the pressure of this world. But not only that, not only in Jesus do we experience God's presence in the midst of trials, but we also will experience God's ultimate deliverance. God didn't promise to deliver us immediately, but he did promise to deliver us ultimately. We might face terrible realities because of our faith. Persecution, faith, suffering. But the truth of the gospel is that there is a day coming when we will be raised just as he was raised. There is a day coming when he will return and he will put an end to Satan's sin and death once and for all. And all suffering will be redeemed in God's eternal kingdom. We will be delivered from sin and its effects. This is why Paul would write to the church in Rome, in Romans 8, and say, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's why Jesus would look at his disciples in John 16, and he would say, in this world you will have tribulation. That's the promise. But here's the second promise. I have overcome the world. He's defeated them already. He's put the powers to open shame. Nothing that pressures you in your life has ultimate power. Only God has ultimate power. And he's revealed it such that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, you can have courage now. Not only because God is with you, but he will ultimately deliver you. One day your suffering will end. One day your trial will end. One day your enemy will end. And God will win and you will reign victorious with the risen Jesus Christ forever and ever. Therefore, you can have courageous faith now. You can reject cultural idolatry now. You can refuse to compromise now. And when you do that, you become powerful witnesses to the Nebuchadnezzars around us. You bear witness to the greatness of God and his glory. I'll close with this. Nick Ripkin spent many years studying Christians who live under severe persecution. He was a missionary in Africa and then spent time traveling around Asia and the Middle East, interviewing and spending time with Christians who suffered under oppressive governments and horrible situations. And he wrote two books, The Insanity of God and the Insanity of Obedience, 
recounting both the stories he experienced, but then also the lessons he learned from them. And in the insanity of obedience, he makes an interesting point in reflecting on what believers in China faced in reality of their persecution under the Chinese government. He writes at one point in that book, Persecuted believers in China have told us time and time again that being in prison was a tremendous evangelistic opportunity. Churches were started among prisoners. Beyond that, persecutors often encountered the grace of God through the witness of imprisoned believers. Suffering believers did not pray that their persecutors would be punished. They prayed that their persecutors would come to experience God's grace. Persecuted believers discovered that the best way to deal with persecutors and to stop their persecution was to pray and witness so that their persecutors would become brothers and sisters in Christ. And he goes on to say this, Much to our surprise, believers in persecution did not ask us to pray that their persecution would cease. Instead, they begged us to pray that they would be obedient through their suffering. And that is a very different prayer. Because when you're obedient through your suffering, you become a witness to the glory and grace of Jesus Christ in ways that you never would otherwise. And so my prayer for you today, in light of Daniel 3, is not simply that you would endure, but that you would be obedient in the face of whatever trial, whatever persecution, and whatever suffering that you would face. And that through that, we would be a community that is a powerful testimony to the greatness of our God and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. In fact, let me just pray for us right now. God, we pray that that would be true. That we would be men and women and children who are obedient. We don't always know your plan. We don't always know. We know that you are sovereign. We know that you are in control. We acknowledge that. But in light of not knowing your plan, would you help us to still live with conviction? Would you help us to be obedient despite the pressure that we face? Would you help us to have courage to pray for our persecutors, to love our enemies, to follow the example of our Savior and lay our lives down in love for those around us as you call us to. So God, would you raise up the faith of our church? Would you make it a courageous one that's not afraid to stand against the idols of our culture? And in that, would you use us to bear witness to the glory of your name? because our heart is to see more men and women come to know you, to experience the joy of salvation that's found in you. Every idol leaves us wanting, but you, Jesus, fulfill us forever and ever and ever. So help us to follow you with radical abandon and radical obedience, I pray. And help us, whatever trial we might be facing or will face, help us trust in your deliverance that you won through your work on the cross and in your resurrection. We love you. We give you praise this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. 
head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.